Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. Bring us together in large groups, put money on the line, and anything could happen. This is a show where current and aspiring business leaders can understand the people dynamics at play in their organizations and learn skills and techniques to improve their chances of long-term business success. This week, I'm joined by Lauren Nordgren, Associate Professor of Management and Organizations at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. Lauren's research considers the basic psychological processes that guide how we think and act. The overarching goal of his work is to advance psychological theory and to use theory-driven insights to develop decision strategies, structured interventions, and policy recommendations that improve decision-making and well-being. Professor Nordgren's research has been published in leading journals such as Science and has been widely discussed in prominent forums such as the New York Times, The Economist, and the Harvard Business Review. In recognition of his work, Professor Nordgren has received the Theoretical Innovation Award in Experimental Psychology. A former Fulbright scholar, he teaches MBA and executive-level courses on the science of leadership. Professor Nordgren has received numerous teaching awards for excellence in the classroom. Lauren is absolutely a top-notch expert when it comes to human behavior, human psychology, and the interactions that we have uh, in groups. He is currently working on a book focused on influence, and we get into that uh, very deep here in this conversation. Whether you are a salesperson, whether you are a manager trying to rally a team around you, or whether you're somebody who's interested in having better conversations with your spouse, I think there's something that you can take away from this. Uh, We're all interacting all the time. We are always trying to achieve different goals in the world, move the world in our favor. And I think that this conversation really applies to a a lot of that. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy the conversation with Lauren Nordgren. In three, two, one, and we are live. Lauren, thank you for joining the show today. Great to be with you. I am super excited to get into this topic because I am a, a nerd and behavior and psychology just fascinate me. I, you know, my day job is in sales, so I'm constantly talking to people. I see how committees and individuals buy. I think that's fascinating. Um, so I'm I'm really excited to dive into this here today, and I know that you, you're doing some work specifically around those areas. So I'm gonna I'm gonna geek out with you a little bit. But diving into this here, I, I was curious first: How do you define yourself professionally? Uh, we'll, we'll we'll talk about we'll keep it professional. But like, are you a behavioral psychologist? Are you a behavioral scientist? How, how do you describe what it is that you do? Yeah, it shouldn't. It it's a that's probably going to be the hardest question of this interview, I think, uh, for me. Um, so my background is in experimental psychology. So um, research into how people think and act. Um, and that was very much my identity. 
entity um, <clears throat> early in my career uh, is just really thinking about uh, human behavior from an experimental perspective. Um, as my career has gone on, that piece remains, um, but I spend more and more of my time in the field. So thinking about working with individuals, working with companies on really how do you get people to lead more effectively? How do you get people to buy into new ideas? How do you lead change both at the uh, eyeball to eyeball level and more at the organizational level? So there's, I kind of think of myself as having three parts. One is in small ways, trying to contribute to the knowledge on the research front, like as an experimental psychologist, behavioral scientist, um, and then I'm teaching leadership courses at uh, Kellogg and for other companies. And then there's a consulting part of me working with companies around behavior change. And I guess if it's uh, for those listening in, I'm attached to Kellogg School of Management in the management department and have been there for, uh, this will be my 13th year. That's great. How did you get into psychology? What was it about behavior mm. and psychology that drew you in originally? Well, first, I'm not sure that people have that kind of introspective access. So I, I can tell you a story. I can tell you an origin story. If you want an origin story, I have no idea if it's true or not. Sure. Um, it's, all, it's all true in hindsight. Yeah. Um, so how did I get started in psychology? So I didn't go to preschool. I didn't go to kindergarten and I barely went to first, second or third grade. And I grew up on 40 acres in the forest, not like raised by wolves, but it was fairly isolating situation. And what that meant is that I was having a, a lot of delayed social experiences. Like I vividly remember my very first pizza party. And I remember it because I felt like I was always a, an amateur anthropologist. Like I didn't know the rules of the game quite as fast as everybody else. And I remember going down to this kid's basement, there were balloons, there's the table, soda, pizza. And I had to always like very quickly assess and study what is going on because um, I, on the one hand, was living this kind of rural kid life, but also it was like on the border of the most kind of generic suburban experience you could imagine. And, and that I think just, I don't know, that early experience, it just felt like as a, as a young kid, I often had to diagnose social situations very quickly. And I felt like I was um, having to be just a, a behavioral scientist early on. And so from that, I don't know, the interest in human behavior has been something that's always fascinated me since then. That's a hell of an origin story. <laughs> that's fantastic. And I, I imagine when you get, like you had to look at the world through a different lens, right? To try to adjust and adapt. And it's interesting when you look at the world through that lens, you never really stop looking at it through that lens. Like it's always a lens that you can look at the world through. And I, I think that's even similar to my own 
growth of interest in psychology because, you know, I got into it through sales and I, you know, I took a, a 101 psych class in college and it was, it was interesting, but I never really thought much about it. And then I got into sales and got into B2B sales and we were selling to committees and I was working with a sales coach and we were talking about our own mindset and we we're talking about the dynamics that we see across the table, how people make decisions, how a process gets run, when something gets derailed. And, you know, you just kind of go deeper and deeper and deeper and suddenly you just find out that this is all screwed up and super fascinating. And, mm-hmm. you know, then you start to learn some of the rules of it and, and you can't really ever not look at it through the lens once you learn some of that stuff. So that, that makes sense to me. For yeah. sure. It's, you know, I think there's this moment of discovery and whether that's self-discovery where you have a moment of now understanding why you do that thing or react in that way or having a keener understanding of some pattern of behavior. Why, you know, why is it that social ties form in this way or why is it people are gravitating towards this individual and not the others? And I think for all the people who are, I know that are really plugged into human behavior and those are people like, I mean, comedians, I think are wonderful people to talk to because a comedian is someone who really has to analyze what's going to create the reaction they want. They have to be able to read an audience. Um, Certainly anyone in, in sales, really any kind of human business once once you have a, a little taste of that insight or discovery, I think for a lot of people, they simply want more of it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm guilty. So there are a lot of directions that we could take this. I know there are a lot of topics that I think are super interesting and also relevant to corporations who are trying to manage the people dynamics of their organization. But I know that you this summer are up to your eyeballs in a very specific topic as you're writing a book that'll come out, I believe next year, is it? Yep. Next August. Next August, uh, which I, you were uh, generous enough to share a little bit of insight into that book. And, and I can see that being a, a big hit and being very relevant to a lot of people. So I think if you could just maybe give a little synopsis on what that content is, and then we can dive into that. Cause I think we could spend, you know, probably more time than we have here, just dissecting that topic alone. So would you explain what the book is and what the topic is that you've really been going deep on? Yeah. Uh, so the, the tentative title is called fuel and friction and I should say up front it's, um, uh, I have a collaborator, a guy by the name of David Schoenthal, David Schoenthal for the Chicago folks, mine, him, he's, um, a powerhouse. So he teaches at Kellogg, but he's uh, so much more than that. So David Schoenthal um, is one of the head guys at IDEO. He was one of the founders of Matter, the health tech startup. He works, he's on the Pritzker board. He does r- a real thought leader in the innovation uh, space. And so the, so the basic idea of the book is we are poking at what we think is a a deep and unexamined uh, assumption. And the assumption is this. So when we think about how do we get someone to embrace a new idea, like how do we sell an idea, sell change, sell a new product, whatever it may be, our deep assumption, whether we're talking about um, uh, 
marketing or influence or innovation is that the way we get people to say yes to us or our idea is through value. Like we're operating implicitly on some kind of law of attraction. Like the, the reason you will say yes, the, the way you will get more listeners to this podcast is by delivering more value, by making it better through enticement. Um, <clears throat> and so sometimes it's, we have to add features to create more value in the offering. Other times it may simply be, we need to add more sizzle to the message. But in essence, we think the reason people say yes to us is because we are fueling the message. And when people hesitate or say no or ignore our innovation, we assume it's because the, the value proposition has been insufficient. The fuel has been insufficient. Yeah. And so what we they do just don't get it. They don't. Yeah, they just don't more. get it. Yeah, it's not enough for them. Like if Kellogg wanted to know if Kellogg wanted to double the applicants, their their unexamined assumption would be that we need to do it. We, we need to communicate our value or we need to heighten that value. And the idea of the book is that big picture, there are two forces operating on any idea, a class of forces that propel or fuel, what we'll call fuel, these ideas, like the value of it. But there's a countervailing force. There are these forces of resistance, what we'll call frictions, that oppose new ideas. And fuel is essential, of course, like if you don't have value, if there's nothing that attracts you to a new idea, you're done. And the professional world has explored fuel so thoroughly, like the way marketers will break down fuel, the way salespeople will break down all the value and how to uh, extract all of that value in a pitch. Like we understand the nature of fuel. What this book is saying is that often the reason people reject new ideas isn't because of the fuel or because the fuel is insufficient. Rather, it's because there are these frictions operating against new ideas and innovation. And these frictions are hard to see. And we have, unlike fuel, where we have so much sophistication around what fuel is and how do we create it. Uh, argument is, if you really want to understand how to get people to embrace change, you also need to have insight into the nature of friction. That makes a lot of sense as somebody who sells things for a living. Uh, you know, you, it's just incredible how many little friction points can pop up something that seems so insignificant come up. And that's the reason that they don't make the change or that it doesn't, you know, work out in your favor. And, you know, I've, I've sort of stopped being surprised because I've seen so many of them, but you know, it is kind of surprising just how some little friction you're not thinking about can derail you. Before we get too deep into this, would love for you to clarify the breadth of this topic, because it's one thing to sit and talk about it. It's easy to think of this as sales. 
And, you know, that's definitely one application of this. And I think in, you know, this show, people business, you know, selling is a people to people thing. And so that's very relevant. But I I think this is so much broader. And I just want people, I want to be very clear about that up front, that it's not just selling a product, but it's any, it's trying to move anybody in a direction. So could you talk to that for a little bit? Yeah, um, that's a really important point. And um, I spend most of my teaching time thinking about influence, but I think of it from the perspective of the executive or the middle manager. So how do we move people, particularly when we don't have the formal authority to command our idea into existence? Um, So this friction idea can apply to a product, but I'm more inclined to think of it in terms, imagine you see a more efficient way to do things in your organization, or you've identified a way to cut down waste or increase productivity. Uh, Those are all influence challenges, influence initiatives. You're simply trying to change the way people think or act. Um, And that's what I devote a lot of my time to thinking about is really the real basic psychology of, of that task. How do we get people to pivot and change course? And for me, much of that time isn't really spent in the context of uh, consumer goods. It's, it's thinking like, uh, believe it or not, I do a lot of work with uh, roofers. I work a lot with the National Roofing Association. And part of our quest is to improve safety practices there. And that's a, um, a real big challenge for commercial roofers is to make sure the the people doing the work out in the field are not cutting corners. And so that's a perfect example of what we're talking about because leadership has a message and the challenge is to get people to buy into that message and to trying to get people, it's a often a large group of people who you rel- rarely if ever going to be face to face with. How do you get them to follow your lead in that situation? So yeah, you can think about this in a sales context, but I'm gonna when I use the word idea, I think of it as if I want students to not look at their phones, that's an influence initiative. When I'm thinking about, um, I don't have kids, but if I had kids, I would be thinking about influence initiatives every day. So for me, the scope of this is behavior oriented. Thank you for defining that. I I, I think that's helpful for people. So back to the fuels and frictions, why do we default to a fuel mindset? So I think there's a couple of reasons and they're interesting. So if you, so let's go back to primitive civilization, early civilization, primitive man, almost universally, all early civilizations relied very heavily, of course, on weather, particularly rain for growing of crops. And almost all of them had saw weather as a result of the gods. And happy gods brought good weather and prosperity. And angry gods brought drought and uh, famine. Sure. What you're seeing in that is something today behavioral psychologists would call the fundamental attribution error, which 
to make uh, to really simplify the concept, it's how do we explain bad events? So if somebody um, cuts you off in line or starts taking the the uh, parking spot that was kind of informally yours, why did they do that? Our deep tendency is to attribute particularly bad outcomes to intention, to uh, motivation. It's in, in a willful intent. Uh, in fact, the word climate comes from the Greek klima, which means inclination. Like the, the angry storms are coming because it was the intent or inclination of the gods. The point is that we see negative things as being driven. Like, why are people rejecting our ideas? We see them as being driven by motivation or intent. What we tend to miss is all the situational or contextual forces that are driving these events. So fuel is maps onto this attribution tendency perfectly. So we see what is fuel designed to do? Like what are, what is an emotional message designed to do? What is a financial incentive designed to do? It's designed to heighten motivation. Fuel is, is there to get us over the line, to propel us. And we naturally, we have this cause and effect uh, way in which we view the world that maps onto motivation. So why did someone do this negative thing to me? Because they dislike me, right? That's the natural cause and effect mindset that we often have. And so we think in fuel because fuel matches that. Like why aren't people buying? Because they're not sufficiently excited. Because so what I'm we, doing isn't good enough. Yeah. And I need to, and if that's how I see the world, then the way I fix that problem is I heighten the excitement, right? Like people thought the gods weren't bringing rain because they were angry. What you don't see in those early mythologies is that the gods weren't bringing rain because maybe they were really busy doing other things. <laughs> right like that's yeah. a situational that's attribution a, that's a great point and it never that never occurred to anybody yeah and these frictions are often situational so so that's one reason i think that we think in in fuel uh i would say another reason is fuel is really easy to spot so like if i gave you any kind of influence challenge like how would you increase the number of listeners uh, to the podcast or increase sales or get more people to show up for the opening night? The ideas you could come up with could apply to almost anything. Like, well, we could pay people. We could put out uh, a slick message campaign. As we begin to dig into what frictions are, what we'll see is that frictions generally require empathy and perspective taking. So maybe a, an example of a friction would be helpful here. That'd be great. So last, your last podcast was this special forces guy, right? Talking about leadership. Yes. So there's a really nice example um, related to the U.S. Army. 
So the U.S. Army is always trying to increase recruitment, and it does this in a few conventional ways. So uh, they visit high schools a lot. I don't know if you remember that, but I remember yep. military folks coming in. Uh, and yeah. then TV commercials is a big uh, method of recruitment for the Army. And it's classic kind of what I would call sizzle syndrome, like classic amplifying the emotional appeal. I mean, the Army has so much going for it. Like it offers respect, camaraderie, uh, purpose, patriotism, financial incentives, right? there. There's a lot of fuel propelling that message but they have this interesting problem which is so you, when they go into a school you've got one class of people that you might call the not for me is that they want those the fuel that the army is offering like the value is universal like everyone wants community and respect and to feel meaning and, and a to be a part of something bigger than themselves, the army's just not the right culture for them, right? They're gonna get it in other ways. Um, who they really care about are the yeah buts, as I would call them. The people who are like, yeah, I find this appealing, but for whatever reason, they just don't cross the line. They never sign up. And they throw all of these messages at these kids to try and get them to sign. Well, it turns out, these kids who are intrigued by the army, they value what it offers, but never sign up, tend to do so for a very particular reason, which is they're afraid to tell their mom. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They're of course. afraid. You're like a 17 year old kid. You're afraid to have that conversation you're afraid it's going to be an emotional conversation. Maybe you're afraid mom's going to be angry or is going to cry. And the, the point of this is all the fuel that you throw at that kid, the, the value proposition for that kid is self-evident. Like they're sold on the idea, but you're not solving the problem that they have. There's something that's holding them back. And if you wanted to reach those kids, it's the removal of that friction that would do so in a way that adding more fuel really never will. Uh, so what that would look like is, can you help them have that conversation? Or even better, could you have that conversation on the kid's behalf? But the point is, why do we think in fuel? For the Army recruiter, that's not an obvious insight. Right, like the obvious insight is, well, let's show them the cool technology and show them the, the adventure. It's all the promise of what we have to offer. Friction requires empathy and perspective taking. And in a way, frictions are twice buried because you have to see things from their perspective. But even when you do, oftentimes people don't really understand what is holding them back. That's a great point. And I see that all the time in a, a, like in a sales context. I mean, you mm -hmm. see it all in the, all over the place too, where somebody will say, oh, well, you know, here's what's important to me. And then they wind up making their decision and they make it for a reason that was totally separate than what they told you up front. And it's not that they were lying, but they just didn't 
understand themselves in that mm-hmm. way. I, I see that all the time. Yeah. And so that means often, sometimes frictions are obvious, but oftentimes there can be a process of discovery for really understanding what is the thing that's holding people back because maybe they're reluctant to tell you, but often they feel the friction, but they don't exactly know what is really the the origin of that friction. Yeah. Your story makes me think of another story that I had heard and I thought it was this great story. And I, I, but now that you say that it just, it's exactly what you're talking about, which it's, uh, the leadership coach that I work with, uh, who I've talked about on this podcast before, he has another client who runs a collections company, which, you know, is, can be a tough business to be in. And they have absolutely blown it out of the water. They have a great culture. Their retention rate is super high, which is not the norm in that industry. And what he realized early on was that the problem wasn't that the people didn't want to pay. It was that they couldn't pay or they were scared to pay because of their financial situation. So they actually opened up a recruiting division or like a placement company that works with their, you know, potential collection, I don't know, targets, clients, I don't know what they would call them, but uh, it works with them to help find jobs. And what they found is that those people then, pay back in a much faster rate, even the offer to help people pay back at a much faster rate than they would otherwise. And I mean, that's exactly to your point, right? It's that friction and you can threaten people all you want. You can add that type of a fuel to it, but until you get somebody comfortable with that income, you know, it's not going to happen. And so now that's the metric that he scores their company on is how many people they've placed. And the more people they place, the more their revenue goes up. Hmm, that's a beautiful example. If if you only are thinking in fuel, it's not only the case, it's not just that you're missing half of the equation. It's also that when you apply fuel, when there are heavy frictions, often what you end up doing is simply amplifying the friction. It's like hitting the gas with the with the parking brake on. Like it's not that you're just not going anywhere, you're doing damage. Could you talk to that a little bit more? Like what goes on in somebody's mind when that happens? Yeah, absolutely. So it it depends on the, so we think about these four frictions, one of them being an emotional friction, the U.S. Army's example of that, it was was fear. Uh, Effort cost, the cost of action is a friction, what we would call reactance and relativity. And you see this notion of how applying fuel can backfire in in a lot of contexts. The reaction friction is a a really great place to look. So so reactance is is essentially the idea, um, psychologists will sometimes call this the status quo bias, but that there's a, a general reluctance to change. One of the things that I've done in some of my research and a lot of my consulting work is look at what happens when you try and propel an idea in a context where there is a lot of resistance. I mean, it may be something as simple as it is just really difficult for them to perform the act. So early on, early, early in my career, 
I was doing some, uh, I was a part of a project that was trying to help women, particularly uh, low SES, like um, low income uh, pregnant women eat better during pregnancy, like get the nutrients they need. And yes, you can take supplements, but supplements carry their own complications. So really what the recommendation, what physicians want is diets rich in vegetables, fresh vegetables, basically. And so it was an effort to get um, women, low-income pregnant women, expecting mothers to reduce like junk food, sodium intake, and eat more vegetables. And the idea was to bring behavioral science to bear on messaging that would convince them to do this, right? This is like the classic way we think about influence, which is a terrible way to think about influence, but it's like, I am going to impose my message onto you and I'm going to give you such a compelling message that you can't help but follow. Well, we monitored two things. We monitored what they ate and we monitored their beliefs about eating healthy. And what we found is that we didn't move the needle at all on health, didn't do anything. Like millions of dollars went into this intervention, but it backfired in the sense that after this intervention, they were less concerned about eating healthy than they had been before. They were less concerned less about concerned. eating healthy. Less concerned. After getting all the messages, hearing testimonials, like, doing all these things that we could think of to, to get them to improve their diet. They'd moved even farther away. Farther away. We made, we made it was well-intended, but we made things worse, um, which happens a lot, actually. Anyone who sat down across the family dinner table with somebody with a different political belief yeah. can see how this plays out, right? Yes. Like yes. every argument you make, you're like, well, no, but here's this great argument. And then th somehow that person just becomes even more dug into their position. Yeah. And the reason for that, the reason we made it worse is because these women live in food deserts and just practically carrying out the message we were giving them wasn't feasible. So every single one of these women wants, it's important to them to believe they're doing the right things for their child. And we're telling them that to be a good mom means eating in this particular way but they really can't. So we're creating tension for them and they're gonna resolve that tension, but the easiest way for them to resolve this problem is to decide we don't know what we're talking about. And we run into this all the time where when you apply fuel without really understanding what frictions are standing in the way of that message, often these attempts backfire. There's a, there's a beautiful, there's a classic study where they asked people who believed in, who endorsed capital punishment, like the death penalty. These are pro-death penalty people, brought them together, and they split them into two groups. And one is going to see scientific evidence that suggests the death penalty is an effective deterrent to crime. And people who are pro-death penalty, that tends to be their number one argument for why they support it. It deters crime. So you're telling them, you're giving them information that matches their beliefs. And 
the other group is hearing that it doesn't work, it's ineffective. And then they look at the strength of their views afterward. Now, in a sensible world, the people who get the matching evidence, maybe their opinion should have strengthened a little bit. And the people who've now seen evidence that contrary to their position, maybe that's moderated their beliefs a little bit or called it's weakened their position somewhat. Well, this is not what they found at all, which is the people who heard what they already believed, their beliefs were unchanged. The people who heard the contrary message now believed in capital punishment more than they ever had. Because giving people messages that conflict with how they see the world, our reaction, we, we treat that information as if it's an invader. We you know, put up the draw bridge, we, we put guards on the gates, we defend those beliefs rather than adjust to the information that we're bringing in. So this conventional approach to influence, probably the main way we try and change how people think is we give them information, like calorie count information. Uh, we show them the facts, we give them data. And either they already know that, like the US Army kids already know that you'll get to play with cool guns and technology, like the, the, it's self-evident. They already want to go blow stuff up. They already want to blow stuff up. Or if you're giving them evidence that's contrary to their beliefs, particularly if they are core beliefs, now not only do they reject it, but very often you make things worse. Like if the, it's like that don't tread on me mentality, you inspire rebellion very often in this kind of traditional approach of imposing an idea onto others also often just creates reactance. So that's an example of when you don't know what the, the frictions are, applying fuel can be deeply problematic. Well, and that's probably why you see so many teenagers go through such a rebellious phase, right? You, you have the parents trying to educate them on what's safe or what's right or all the reasons they should or shouldn't be doing something and the teenagers are just digging in. And so what you're saying then is more, I think people attribute that to, oh, we're going through puberty or, you know, it's some phase, but it's really probably a little bit more reactance, what you're talking about. It's that they don't understand the frictions in those moments. Yeah. It's that one of our core intrinsic needs is autonomy or freedom. And this is the paradox of persuasion, which is influence is an act of guiding people. And it's not so much what I like to say about this idea of reactance. It's not so much that we don't like new ideas. We don't like change. It's that we don't like being changed. Yeah. We don't like feeling as though people are guiding us down a path that we don't like this feeling of being pushed and our reaction to being pushed is generally the pushback. Yeah. Well, I mean, that even right there explains the rise in flat earthers and and that movement and the sort of anti-science folks that are out there right now. And I mean, it, and then you have the scientific communities just saying, well, no, but here's all the data. Like here, I can convince you, here's what it is. And then they just dig in further. I mean, my head is spinning right now, just thinking about all the issues that are going on out there right now. And I, I tend to be just politically a little bit more of a centrist. And so it, it, 
and I, I do believe in communication between groups. And so it, it's frustrating to watch the groups yell at each other from both sides or, or politely try to educate each other even. And just, you can just see it from the outside. If you've, you know, studied any of this. And now I can see it a lot more having talked to you and, and read some of the stuff that you had sent me, you know, you can just see that this is not working. And in fact, it's, it's working in the opposite direction. Yeah. The, are you familiar with deep canvassing this approach to, uh, I wasn't before I read what you sent me, but I would love to have you talk about it. Cause I, I think it's really interesting. So if the conventional approach to influence is to impose a view, I think the number one axiom of influence, like the number one principle of how do we persuade is to remember, in a way we have to unlearn that habit of imposing. And the number one rule is that humans are most effectively persuaded by arguments that they self-generate. And this insight, I think, has tremendous application for small everyday moments and big institutional dilemmas. So deep canvassing is a, is a fascinating approach to political engagement. And it's think door-to-door canvassing, people knocking on your doors, wanting to talk to you about a position or candidate. Now, what is the conventional approach going to look like? It's going to be fuel-based. Let me tell you about how great this person is or why it's in your interest to vote for this person, all about benefits and value. And it's going to confront you. And that's not going to work. In fact, most canvassers target their base of support and try and move some swing voters but you intentionally avoid the house that you know is on the other side of the fence politically. Because if I give you that message, political strategists are savvy enough to know I'm probably making things worse, right? So we're not even gonna engage with people who don't think the way we think. Deep canvassing is an approach started by, it's called the Leadership Lab out in LA. And it's, it's, it's a process that looks nothing like what you would have experienced when, a, you know, when a, um, a canvasser shows up on your door. So it begins, there's no script. It begins by asking questions. So you would say, um, this has mostly been around gay rights and transgender rights, but you can apply deep canvassing to any issue left or right, but in deep canvassing, it begins by asking someone, what's your position on say, transgender rights or a particular um, uh, issue? And the canvasser is there to listen intently, but not reveal any reaction. The canvasser shouldn't reveal whether she agrees or disagrees with what that person is saying. Then the canvasser is gonna ask if they have if the person has had a personal experience with that issue. So if it's gay rights, you might ask, is anyone in your family or friends gay or, or um, struggled with the, the particular issue at hand? And they will listen to what they have to say. At this point, the canvasser may share their own personal story. And the way this will end is the canvasser will ask a really interesting question, which is, 
have you ever had experience where people uh, discriminated against you because of who you were, or you felt like you were at a disadvantage because of who you were? And almost everyone can think of ways in which they've been treated unfairly. So they begin to answer that question. And it's not until that point where the canvasser tries to connect those two things and talk like what the canvasser is trying to do is get people to self-generate, to come to the self-realization that they have shared experience with this issue. That even if you've never known a transgender person, you have in one way or another felt discriminated against or felt like you've been treated unfairly. Yeah, and but it, it seems like it's less about the other person. It's more about the principle or the issue or the feeling that they're trying to push forward. And it's about getting with. that person to arrive at that insight on their own. Yeah. Rather than you as the canvasser, as the influencer to give them that insight. How do you train just in, in that for a second? Because we talk a lot in the sales training that I do about the yeah. mindset that you have walking into a conversation. And yeah. we spend a lot of time talking about being detached from the outcome, having mm-hmm. high intent, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's got to be about the, what's best for that person. And we talk about abundance, right? Not, not being scarce and, and being abundant. And it's only when you go in with those mindsets that you can really have an honest conversation and, and you come off in a much different way than if you have the opposite mindsets. And for something like deep canvassing, like it's, it's easy to say what you just said and then say, okay, and then like educate a, a team of people and say, great, go do this. But if they go out knowing that the end of that conversation is going to be, I'm going to get you, you know, I'm going to convince mm-hmm. you of this thing, then the whole lead up can come off still as self-serving, even if you're asking those right questions. So how, how do you prep or teach people to cultivate that right mindset going in to actually practice this stuff? I, I think empathy is probably at the center of that. And I've not been involved in deep canvassing, canvassing directly, but I've read a lot about it. And the training is extensive and the training doesn't have this. And like, now I've got you feel Um, because what I should say, what's so fascinating about deep canvassing is they are actively going to the opposite side, right? Deep canvassing is designed not to engage the base. It's not, it's a little designed to engage the swing votes. It's designed to, as a way to begin to break down resistance to those people who oppose you ideologically. And a big part of that training is understanding that the same shared humanity that you're trying to get those people to see and acknowledge, uh, you have to have that as well. Yeah. There was a, um, oh God, I'm going to blank on his name now. Um, he was a guest on Joe Rogan's podcast a couple months ago, and he also did a thing on the social media network Minds recently about racism. Um, a, a black man, musician, I think he's in his 60s now, and he's credited with, I think it's like 300 KKK members turning oh, yeah, in their yeah. robes. I, know, I don't know his name. I know exactly. I can yeah. see this. Yeah. 
but that, I mean, it's, he just goes in without any agenda and he just shows people what it's like to have a black friend, you know, shows these white people who've never been, you know, around black people who have these very racist views, you know, what it's like to have a black friend. And and he really becomes friends with these people and, Mm -hmm. and is so generous with that, that then they wind up realizing themselves how stupid they've been the whole time and, and how wrong they've been. And then, you know, eventually they wind up handing him their robes, which is, I mean, it's fascinating to listen to, but it's, it's funny when you see, when you, when you learn this stuff, like having this conversation with you and all of a sudden all these bells are going off in my head. And I apologize if I'm telling too many stories that I've come across, but it's just like all these connections suddenly get made where you're like, oh yeah, that's why these things are effective or, oh, that's why this thing is not effective. Yeah. It's, um, no. And, and, um, the guy you're talking about is effective because people don't feel as though they're trying to be changed. Mm -hmm. And this whole notion of self-persuasion is so powerful. Like, um, I think a good rule of thumb for people, um, an executive shared this a few years ago is to never attempt to influence before you get people to say yes first. And the way I'll often do this, if you're trying to break down, like you're in a meeting and you know you're facing deep opposition, a great question to ask before you share your opinion is to say, I don't know, I've listened real carefully to your thoughts. I have a different point of view, but before I share it, I first want to make sure, are you open to hearing a different perspective? Like, are you open to a different point of view? Like, what what are people going to say to that question? Yes. And simply getting people to say, yes, I would like to hear your opposing view, it doesn't mean it's easy to get them to buy in at that point, but you can see that they have, are now going to hear you out in a way that they wouldn't otherwise. I think yeah. in sales sometimes this is called the yes ladder and it can feel in some, there's like a, a very tactical quality to that at times. Yeah. But I find it a, that mindset of how do I get you to publicly commit to verbalize? Yes. The more I can get you to tell me what you want it, what I want to hear rather than me tell you the better off this idea is going to be. Have you, heard or read the book never split the difference um i know all about it okay so uh i'm a big fan of that book as well and it's interesting you talk about the less the yes ladder he actually argues in that book that you want to create a no ladder mm-hmm. which which is interesting it you're essentially driving to the same thing but his thing and, and he comes at it he was the i think chief international hostage negotiator for the FBI at one point. And uh, the argument that he makes is that people get defensive when you try to get them to say yes. And so if you can get them to say no, they're, they're more comfortable. They'll, they'll more readily say no. So to say, instead of saying, you know, are you open to hearing another opinion to say, are you opposed to hearing another opinion? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I, I found that an interesting switch in my own 
mm-hmm. life really. I mean, definitely in my work, but in my life too, just, you know, talking to my wife and saying, you know, Hey, are you, are you opposed to this? Hey, would it be too much if we did this? Uh-huh. You know, it's like, it's really easy to be like, Oh no. What they're really saying is yes, I'll do that thing. But yep. it's, it's that no ladder. So I think no matter which way, I just want to say that is you can kind of approach it either way, which you're really trying to get is buy-in, right? Yep. And, and I think the reason he would arrive at a technique like that is um, this feeling of reactance, of, of pushing back against influence. We feel in context of pressure. And yeah. that's a... That's a you, if you're a salesperson, part of the challenge you face is just anticipated pressure. People walk in the door with their guard up. Yeah. And so if you are a hostage negotiator, the person who you're talking to believes you are there to persuade. Yeah. And I imagine That's a good point. you have to be particularly sensitive to that dynamic. And so folk, it, it's all the same thing, but you're, I, I really love the insight, which is, if getting people to say yes feels like pressure, getting people to say no may do the, it's, it's not about the yes or no, it's about getting them to agree and some to acknowledge yeah. the point of view. Again, I find this stuff fascinating. Um, so I, I know we're getting close on time here. And there, there's one point that I, I found really interesting that I think would be good to have you talk about too, which is, it, so let's take this to the extreme and you can figure out how to make your idea frictionless, right? You can make it so easy that there's no way people wouldn't do it. But according to my understanding from, from what you've shared, that doesn't work either necessarily, or, or can backfire at least. Could you talk a little bit to that dynamic? What I would say is the, there are ways you can be strategic about the use of frictions. Okay. And Frictions can themselves propel change in really interesting ways. For example, relativity is another friction that I find really exciting, which in the conventional approach to selling an idea to influence uh, what we do, imagine you're trying to get people to use some new technology in your, in maybe it's a new reporting system in your organization, whatever. Uh, in the conventional approach, you're going to put that thing in front of people and you're going to tell them why. You're going to explain the benefits. Just a traditional fuel-based mindset. When we give people one option, like here's this new thing, there is a friction operating against them that they don't see, but it's Once you learn this, like you can't unlearn it, you'll see it everywhere. What's operating against them is the force of relativity. And so relativity, we understand the world in relative terms. So um, scale of one to five, how five being high, how funny are you? Oh, you're going to actually make me answer that? Yeah, yeah. Five being high? Yeah. Two and a half. Two and a half. Okay. How good a dancer are you? Three and a half. Three and a half. Okay. You cannot answer that question. You can't do that self-assessment in a vacuum. Implicitly, you're not doing it consciously, but implicitly, you're answering a different question. You're answering relative to the people I've met in my environment around me, how good am I? 
am I the best, the worst, somewhere in the middle? Like we understand everything in relative terms. Yeah. So when you put a new thing, a new idea, a new procedure, a new product in front of people, there is an implicit point of comparison, which is the status quo. Like what, what they're doing today, like what is comfortable, familiar, known. So in the conventional approach of when I put a new idea in front of you, that conventional approach has a friction built in because you are, you may, you're likely not aware of it, but you're really not asking yourself, what do I think of this idea? You're comparing this idea to what you're doing now. And there's a really good chance that what you really value is the ease of what you're doing now and all the fuel that's going to help make you make life better, all the arguments you're using to get people to buy in, what they're comparing it to is something that's known and comfortable and familiar and safe. So that friction, so as a basic rule of, for influence, you might say, don't offer one thing one path. Anytime I'm offering you one choice, you're probably comparing it to the status quo. And very often the status quo is, is going to be more comfortable for people. Mm -hmm. But here's how you could. Um, so like um, an example, there's a, a do some work with a commercial waste management uh, in that industry. And we're working with a group that they, so they sign contracts with restaurants and hospitals and for like they'll handle their garbage for a certain period of time and they wanted them to sign longer term deals and I think they were offering something like a one year and a three year deal and they were just talking up the three about the benefits of relationships of like whining and dining using emotional appeals basically to try and get move people from one year to three year so as soon as they saw relativity, they changed the approach and it, and it changed dramatically. They moved, they started offering a seven-year deal. And that seven-year, once that's on the table, it transforms how people thought. All of a sudden now three looks like safe, comfortable, seems normative. A different way that you can use frictions is not only so do you the point is that's taking attention away from the status quo. Very often, I think a really interesting idea and a missed opportunity is we remove inferior options. So if you're a middle manager and you're trying to get your admins to do some new practice or procedure, what you probably do is you identify the new software you want them to use. And there are maybe four different products out there and you pick what you believe to be the best one and you tell them about that. Well, from the science of relativity, that is a huge missed opportunity because if I do that thing again, they're just comparing it to the software they're using today. What you would want to do is use the inferior options as reference points. Like you might not put them on the table as legitimate options, but you might say something like, so you know the process I've followed. As you'll see, there's one product that I think is the clear winner, but there are others. And I want to quickly tell you about a couple of them, highlight some of their features, but ultimately, and also explain why I don't think they work for us. Because in keeping the inferior options in, 
you magically elevate the value of the option you want people to say yes to. Well, and there's, there's a part of collaboration in there too, it would seem, right? Is that an important element of this in any way? Yeah. So I think the, when you're thinking about when you're doing your diagnosis of frictions, one of the questions you want to ask yourself is, is my audience, are they an author of this idea? Have they played a role in this process or not? And in the, in the conventional approach for influence, the answer is usually no. It's, I've been telling you what to think or why this is best, but you have not been involved in the process in any way. So um, like uh, co-design strategies are a way to get people to buy into new ideas because you're there working with the client and they're helping to develop the idea. Uh, believe it or not, this is a uh, brainwashing kind of works like this. So um, like, like actual brainwashing, like actual, actual brainwashing is so brainwashing started in the Korean war. So 1953, I think. And there was a colonel in the Marines that got captured and highest ranking member of the military to become a POW, at least in that war. And within a month or two after being captured, he went on television, Korean television broadcast to the world, saying that the Americans were dropping uh, biological weapons on not just Korean soldiers, but civilians, anthrax, and even the plague. Okay, this is not Just to be true. clear, that was not true. Yeah, that was not true. Not true. This is a, this is there is not an ounce of truth to that. Within a year, I think there was something like 7,500 American POWs. Almost 5,000 of them had signed confession letters saying that, yes, we are doing this. Not true. When the U.S. exited that conflict, I mean, still technically, they're still technically at war, but when the U.S. left that conflict, 21 American POWs refused to repatriate. They stayed. Wow. And, the, and thus came the term brainwashing. And it became one of the new the American you know, CIA, the, I don't know if you know the MK Ultra program where they were experimenting with LSD. Oh, sure, at yeah. There was a very, at that time. Um, yeah, they were calling it mind Uber. control, right? Mind control. Mind control became a real fear. And we had this fear that people could be reprogrammed and would more or less be sort of puppets of some foreign actors. Well, when scientists started looking at the, the, the POWs who came home, I mean, first, there are a lot of things that contributed to that and torture is a part of it, sleep deprivation, like a lot of those, that's, that's a part of it. But what struck people is that a lot of these messages didn't feel coerced. Right? It didn't seem like someone who was just reading off a script. And what the, the, the Chinese military who were holding the, the U.S. soldiers, they started in a really interesting place. They started by not telling American soldiers that capitalism is terrible and that America is, is horrible. 
They started by asking the following question. Would you agree that no country is perfect? Yeah. That's a the yes. Answer is yes. Yeah. The answer course. is yes. No, of yeah. course, no country is perfect. Yeah. Aha. So then um, if if you're telling me no country is perfect, then what must that mean about your country? Yeah. It's not perfect. Okay. It's not perfect. Third question is something like, tell me some of the ways in which your country has failed you. So now they're verbalizing the arguments against their own country and just like the deep can they're essentially deep canvassing POWs. Exactly. They aren't telling them what to think. They're using questions to get people to say what they want them to hear. Yeah. And it, you know, I always think influence tactics are like a hand. They can help or they can hurt, right? They can hit or they can help pick someone up. So the application of these things can vary tremendously. But what it speaks to is when we want people to buy in, we don't want to push. We want to find ways to get them to say yes to our messages, to get them to publicly commit, verbalize, the message. We want to find ways to get them to participate in that message. And because when we do so, people will internalize the message in ways they won't when we're simply telling them. And, and to kind of loop this back, um, when you hear someone describe an idea as it's PC, that usually means they think it's an, a, a cultural attitude that's like being imposed and they don't really believe to be true. Mm. And you can, interesting. I think people will stop saying those, the non PC thing out of fear of punishment, but it doesn't change their beliefs internally. And the moment they think they're in good company, when it comes time to vote and all kinds of matters that, sort of public shaming feeling is not going to operate the way you want it to. Like the way you would really change that behavior is to not push, but to find ways to draw them into the process and to be participants in that process. Well, I mean, you can, I think that explains right now why you're seeing this outburst of racism across the country. You know, we, we, I think it felt to a lot of people like we had progressed past a lot of the stuff that we're seeing right now. Mm -hmm. And yet, I mean, obviously there were people still experiencing it, but all of a sudden it erupts again. And it's like, Oh yeah, those, you can't pressure someone to get rid of those views. And, yeah. and those views were always there and they were always hidden. And yeah. now, you know, they're coming back. Now they feel a little more comfortable out. and they're coming back to the surface. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting way to look at this. You, uh, I mean, I had already I had already read a few pages of the book draft and it had changed my worldview. This hour that we've spent together has opened my eyes to a lot of things. I'm gonna have to go back and listen to this one a couple of times to process the world a little differently from here on out. I have one more question if you've got a few minutes. And yeah, I just sure. it's a curious one. It's one that I've been asking most of my guests at the end of the interviews here. And I'm curious from a from a behavioral scientist's standpoint, what is the purpose of business? Oh man. <laughs> this isn't meant to be a gotcha question. I just curious on your personal take on the purpose behind business. Um, so I'll, I'll share thoughts that come to mind. 
So first, any student of mine will get sick of hearing me say, everything should be driven by our goals. And an, an idea that I often share is that we're not often consciously aware of what our goals are. Like I bet many people listening go, go into a meeting not really understanding what they're trying to achieve. So are, is it a decision-making goal where my task is to try and surface information and, and harness the collective energy, the creativity of the room so we can choose the best path? Or do I have an influence goal where I know where we should go and my job is to try and move people down a particular path? I suspect most of the time we have a vague notion that we're here to do a good job, but we don't really know what we're trying to achieve. And I, I, I mentioned this because I don't have an interesting take on the purpose of business. It seems to me that that purpose can be, there can be different reasons for this pursuit. But what I connect to with that question is the importance of truly understanding what those goals are. I think because that's a good point. I suspect most people who are getting up in the morning, day-to-day -day moments, or thinking about launching a new company, they may have some vague sense of why they are doing this. But the more we have an explicit understanding of what our goals are, the more we can make sure our day-to-day -day actions align with those goals. I think that's a fantastic answer. And anyone who has had any sort of purposeful journaling practice, I think knows mm. the truth of what you're talking about, right? It's mm -hmm. one thing to have a vague understanding. It's one thing to have an understanding in your head. It's another thing entirely to articulate that understanding. And what I have found is often when I sit and actually write out my goals or write out why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling or write out something that I've learned, I realize that it's not exactly what I thought it was. That first thing that I go to write, I get, you know, I get halfway through the first sentence and I go, well, that's not really true. It's really a little bit more this other thing. And, you know, and, and you wind up defining and distilling down whatever it is that you're journaling about or trying to articulate in a much more meaningful way. And so I, I think that you're right. And the more that we can be articulating and defining our goals, the more successful we can then be because we understand ourselves. Lauren, this has been fantastic for me. I, uh, I love this conversation and could keep going for hours on end, but I won't do that to you. Uh, maybe at some point we do a round two or something like that, but I, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate your insights. I can't wait to get my hands on your book when it comes out. Um, and to, get this out into the world, but then also help you promote your book in any way. Cause I, I just, I think these are fascinating insights that everybody can apply to make every interaction better. Right. I mean, I, I can just think about all the different sort of tough conversations that I have every day, um, family, friends, colleagues, clients, all that stuff. And, and this can apply to all of that in my mind. So I really appreciate your wisdom and your time. Thank you. Hey, thank you. This was a blast. Hey, folks, one last thing before you go. If you have a friend or colleague who you think would enjoy this episode, 
hit that little share button and send it their way. Also, if you like the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss the next one. That's it. Thanks for coming. I'm O'Brien McMahon. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.